Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I did want to start out by sharing one brief story with you. And I think it's, you know, an important context. It's a fascinating story, but it's also also should inform us as to what our real traditions are in this country that have been largely buried. I'm talking about going back to the founding of the Republic, and I'm talking about the uh, less than toxic traditions rather than the highly toxic traditions, if you understand what I'm saying. But in 1792, now, you know, we became a republic in 1789. That's when the Constitution was ratified and George Washington was elected president and or selected president by Congress. And it was kind of the beginning of the whole thing, right? 1789. And so by 1792, we are three years into this republic, into the United States, what we call the United States of America. George Washington is president. John Adams is vice president, as I recall. Thomas Jefferson was secretary of state. Alexander Hamilton was secretary of the treasury. John Jay was the first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. And I'm kind of hitting the limits of my memory there, but there was kind of a a collection of luminaries, at least in terms of intellectual firepower and whatnot, for the founding of the republic. And in 1792, the country faced a crisis. Now, keep in mind, the country was, you know, these colonies along the eastern seaboard. But that made the crisis even more real because one of the major crops, as it were, during that era, during that time, was fish, specifically cod. And there were these huge cod fisheries right off the east coast. And they had been terribly disrupted by the Revolutionary War and by uh, the growing commerce You know, there was a problem. I mean, to this day, nobody's exactly sure what happened. But basically, the cod fisheries got wiped out in 1792. And as a result, we had all kinds of fishermen who were out of luck, you know, out of money. They, You know, there was a a minor depression in the Northeast as a result of these cod fisheries being wiped out. And so Congress met. And, you know, these people who I just named said, what do we do about this? And a debate broke out about what Congress should do and how it should do it. There was a a broad consensus that Congress had to do something. There There were people who were really experiencing financial crisis. 
and it was hurting communities. It had the potential even down the road to make life pretty rough in the new republic. I mean, it had, it had the potential to be politically destabilizing as well. Although that wasn't the principal concern. The principal concern was, you know, we've got people who are on the verge of homelessness because the cod fisheries have been wiped out. So what do we do? So Jefferson suggested that Congress appropriate money and give that money to the fishermen, to the actual people who did the work. Now, the fishermen did not, by and large, own the boats. People who owned the boats were one huge step up the food chain. But then Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of Treasury, uh, George Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, he was like, no, the money should go to the people who own the boats, because they're the employers. And, you know, they'll know how to best use that money, and they'll put it to work, and they'll put people back to work, and, you know, all kinds of good stuff will happen if we give that money to the people who own the boats. At the end of the day, the way it all ended up was Congress came up with a compromise. Now, you just keep this in mind in the context of right now, where the Fed has funneled $7 trillion worth of money into bonds and purchasing the stock of major corporations. We're pouring money into giant banks. Their executives are taking massive bonuses as we head toward the end of the year, the whole banking sector a couple days ago. But here's what they came up with. They decided that five-eighths of the money that they were appropriating should go directly to the workers. And three-eighths of the money they were appropriating should go to the people who owned the boats to keep the boats maintained, to keep them going. You know, the assumption was that the cod fisheries would recover in a few years, and in fact, they did. So this was, this was like the first stimulus. Now, I will give you that there are conservatives today who argue that having the federal government give money to working people to, to prevent economic calamity is socialism. In fact, they, there are people, there are conservatives who would argue that it is communism and that the founders would never agree with that. They were good conservatives and this, that's not the American way and how dare you, we can't even think like that. And, uh, you know, quack, 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 quack. And for that, I would uh, reference, I would refer you back to 1792 when Congress decided that five-eighths of the relief money that had to do with the collapse of the cod fisheries should go to the working people, not to the owners, to the labor class, not the uh, senior class. On the line with us, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his latest understanding socialism, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com, and uh, his Twitter handle, profwolf, as in professor, profwolf with two fs. And uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Uh, thank you so much for, for uh, you know, hanging out with us uh, so regularly. I'm looking at the tweet from Donald Trump saying, Wow, 30% growth in GDP, we are rocking, or words to that effect. And then I'm looking at uh, Justin Walfer's reply to that tweet. Uh, he's a professor of economics at uh, the Ford School at the University of Michigan. 
And uh, he says the GDP rose by 7.4% after falling 9% in the previous quarter. All told, the economy is 3.5% smaller than at the end of 2019. He said, for context, that's roughly, uh, or that's far below its peak in the darkest days of the recession of 2008. So uh, what's the real story here? I'm, I'm, I'm getting whiplash. Well, you know, it's a sort of shameless huckstering that we've come to expect from Mr. Trump after all these years. He takes a number, yanks it out of any context in order to present an argument that nobody with even a little bit of understanding would, would, would waste time on. Here's what happened. The economy tanked very badly uh, since March. Everybody knows that. What happened was over the summer... There was this effort, which we now understand terribly misguided, to get us, quote-unquote, back into the economy. All around the world, but especially here in America, restaurants reopened and uh, museums reopened, at least to some extent. We're going to get back into the economy. And so we brought a lot of people back under conditions that weren't safe, hadn't been made safe enough. But we did get a three months during the summer, the, the, that quarter, uh, of uptick, and that's what he's talking about. But the uptick wasn't even close to undoing the collapse that had happened in the three months starting around the middle of March. So we are behind where we were uh, at the end of 2019. We are an economy fully in recession slash depression. And not only that, but the upturn that he is celebrating doesn't include the month of October. And in that month, every single indicator, employment, production, you name it, is down again. So we saw a collapse. We saw a coming back up a little bit. And now we're heading down again as the corona numbers are coming in. So this is just an attempt, a desperate attempt of a politician in trouble to make something out of what is, in fact, very bad news. How is the average person who's not an economist and doesn't have a fingertips grasp of this kind of stuff, how do we know what the economy is actually doing? I mean, for years and years, it's been sold to us the idea that, you know, the indicator of the, of the health of the American economy is the stock market. Well, we know that that's not the case. And now Trump is pitching, well, it's GDP numbers. Those are the magic numbers. What really should we be looking at? It's a little bit like the metaphor of a doctor. If you went to a doctor and all he did was, or she did, was to put a thermometer in your mouth, uh, you would not go to that doctor again because you know that one measure, one index, one calculation doesn't capture the complexity of the health of your body. So you need lots of different tests, and you have to have somebody who understands it explain it to you, somebody you can have confidence in who will tell you, these are the signs that you're in good shape, these are the signs that you've got some problems, here's the best explanation we have, and here's the, the, the treatment that we would suggest. We don't have anything like that in our political life. We have politicians desperate to twist and spin anything that's going on to make them look good. Think of it as advertising. 
when you have an advertiser, all he does is tell you about how good the product is that's paying him. He doesn't tell you its flaws. He doesn't tell you its problems. It's dishonesty writ large. And we're supposed to kind of know it, that it's advertising. But we are, in fact, affected by it. I'm afraid our politics is just another form of advertising in which everybody is trying to grab your attention to tell a story that may or may not have any supporting evidence whatsoever, but believe me, they'll come up with something that they can say positive. Yeah. Well, you and I talked uh, a few months ago about how the Fed was basically manufacturing money out of thin air and using that money to uh, buy corporate bonds. In other words, to loan money to giant uh, publicly traded corporations and then uh, later even buying their stock to support their stock in the stock market. Is that still going on? And uh, what, you know, it's been a while since we talked about it. What's your sense of where that might lead? What is the consequence of this kind of behavior by the Fed? And, and, and is anybody, you know, waving some alarms about this? There are beginning to be alarms raised. First of all, to answer your question, the Federal Reserve is continuing to make credit available. Massive amounts of credit at virtually zero interest rate, just above zero, to America's largest corporations. The only honest way to describe that is that American capitalism, corporate capitalism, is now on life support. It is dependent on the Federal Reserve printing money and making it available at almost no cost to keep these companies going. And that's what is keeping them going. Just like the provision of low interest money is keeping the stock market going as people can buy stocks with borrowed money that costs them nothing. So they continue to do it because the Federal Reserve has basically signaled that if anything happens to undercut the companies or anything happens to undercut their share prices, in will come the Federal Reserve with even more money. The anxiety now is precisely because everybody knows what I just said, who's in the corporate world, every company is borrowing money to beat the band. Whatever your problem is as a company, even if what you have to sell is of no interest to anybody anymore, you can get by for another quarter, for another year, by simply borrowing money. It has become the cheapest easiest way to go to the government to get bailed out, not because there's a crisis, but simply on an ongoing basis. And the anxiety that's beginning to be articulated by even members of the Federal Reserve Board is that we are developing an economy that is unsustainable, that these companies can never pay back the amount of money they owe. They can't earn that in a depressed economy, and that therefore we have and we even have a new term for it. I'm sure you know it, uh, Tom. Zombie corporations. Corporations mm -hmm. whose, prof whose profits now are simply inadequate simply to cover the interest that they have to pay. And if the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, which it may have to do in the years ahead, well, then these companies are simply going to go belly up. And people are very afraid if that happens, you're going to see the crash of this economy that has only been postponed by what the Federal Reserve is doing. We just have 20 seconds. Couldn't the Fed just as easily have rolled over student debt and, and now everybody's paying 0% interest rate on student debt? 
Absolutely. They could have and they should have. Here's another scandal. They could have and should have funded the states and the cities. Because of our unemployment, because of COVID, they don't have any money to do this public support that we need desperately. The Federal Reserve didn't do it, and we face, therefore, another crisis in all of our cities and states. It's a grim picture. It really is. Professor Richard Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by and talking with us. My pleasure, Tom. Much appreciated. Democracyatwork.info and check out Professor Wilson's books. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Bob Woodward, back in April, now just, you know, put this timeline in your head. You'll recall it was it was November that the U.S. government learned that there was a contagious disease running around in China and notified Israel and some of our other allies. It was December that we figured out pretty much what it was. It was January that the Chinese government publicly announced what was going on and published the genome of the virus so that by the end of January, the World Health Organization had come up with a test for it which they had distributed to over 60 countries. Trump said we wouldn't take it because that's going to those asshole countries and we don't want it. Um, we'll, develop, we'll develop our own. We'll, we'll figure out some way for some Trump buddy to make a fortune on this. And, and then on March 11th, that was when Donald Trump declared uh, a lockdown, basically, or a, you know, kind of shut down the economy. And then something happened. And as I said, it was April 18th that Bob Woodward sat down with Jared Kushner and said, what's going on with this virus? And Jared Kushner said, we have, we being the Trump administration, we have taken the power back from the doctors. That's not the verbatim quote, um, but, you know, words to that effect. We're running this show now, not the doctors. So what was happening right around April 18th? Well, as I mentioned, on March 11th, Trump had shut the country down. The economy had crashed. People were laid off. But, you know, saving lives is the number one consideration. I mean, Trump was putting doctors on TV every day. He was holding these meetings. The media was freaking out. We were watching refrigerated trucks carrying bodies away from New York hospitals. Doctors and nurses were our new national heroes. And then came April 7th. On April 7th, the New York Times ran a front page story with the headline, Black Americans Face Alarming Rates of Coronavirus Infection in Some States. And across the American media landscape, all, you know, similar headlines were popping up in every newspaper. The Washington Post did a story like this, CNN, uh, MSNBC, Fox News, ABC, NBC, CBS, Evening News, all of them, everybody. April 7th, everybody led with this story. America, African Americans are disproportionately getting and dying from the coronavirus. And the white American conservative infrastructure sat up like Scooby-Doo and went, you know, what the hell? It, you know, it was like, whoa. Rush Limbaugh went on the air and said, with the coronavirus, I have been waiting for the racial component. The coronavirus now hits African-Americans harder, harder than illegal aliens, harder than women. It hits African-Americans harder than anybody. Disproportionate representation. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't take a medical savant. You don't have to be a doctor to figure out that that would be the case. 
because African-Americans die at disproportionately higher rates from everything, from heart disease to strokes to cancer to childbirth in America. It's a symptom of a racially rigged economy and healthcare system that only responds to money, which America has conspired to keep from African-Americans for more than 400 years. Of course they're going to die more frequently from the coronavirus. But the New York Times and the Washington Post simultaneously publishing these front page stories, both on April 7th, echoed across the right wing infrastructure, the media landscape, like a 4th of July fireworks display. Tucker Carlson went on the air and he had been taking the, the virus seriously. He was about the only Fox primetime host who had. And he said, you know, right after this report, well, we can begin to consider how to improve the lives of the rest, the countless Americans who've been grievously hurt by this, by our response to this. How do we get 17 million of our most vulnerable citizens back to work? That's our task. White people were out of work and black people were most of the casualties outside of the extremely elderly. And those white people needed their jobs back. Britt Hume went on Carlson's show as the news guy. And he said, well, the disease turns out not to be quite as dangerous as we thought. Right. Even Fox News viewers can hear dog whistles like that. More than 12,000 Americans had died from the coronavirus as of April 7th. But most of the non-elderly victims were black. And suddenly everything was different. It took less than a week for Trump to get the memo. You know, on April 12th, he retweeted a call for Dr. Anthony Fauci to be fired. And in another tweet said that he had the sole authority to open the United States back up and would roll out a plan to do that shortly. That was April 12th. Keep in mind, April 18th was when Bob Woodward recorded this conversation with Jared Kushner. On April 13th, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce published a policy paper titled Implementing a National Return to Work. On April 14th, FreedomWorks, the group that brought us the Tea Party, um, published an op-ed on their website calling for an economic recovery program and a new law to shield businesses from lawsuits. Three days after that, Freedom Works in the House Freedom Caucus issued a joint statement declaring it's time to reopen the economy. They published the Freedom Works published their Reopen America Planning Guide, um, saying to show up in person at your state capitol and governor's mansion uh, with your homemade signs. Uh, you know, and this led to you know these these rallies all over the country. Probably the one that got the most attention was the one in Michigan, where they were you know threatening Gretchen Whitmer. So that's what was going on April 18th. Let's put this in context. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, the conservative meme from then till now is, hey, you know, white pe- the risk to white people is small, so let's get back to work. Right. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. 
Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. James in Portland. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. So uh, I'm a retired electrician, and I just got our labor press. And this is directly to anybody that's going to vote for Trump. And think about this statistic. Mm -hmm. 83% of the tax cut that Trump put in went to the 1%. Right. If you earn less than 200000 you got a 2% cut. If you earn over 500000 your tax dropped from 39 to 37. So I think it shows uh, who his buddies are. Yeah, therefore what? I'm agreeing with you. I mean, that was, I think most of the country realizes that Trump's tax cut, and then there was a huge tax cut built into the, uh, the first uh, coronavirus uh, bill too. And it turns out to have been, you know, a multi-trillion dollar tax cut, it looks like. Um, uh, and uh, it's, it, that, that one doesn't get a lot of uh, attention, but um, therefore, what do we do about that, James? Uh, or did you just want to point it out? Well, I think uh, we don't really, uh, what, he just says tax cut, and he thinks, oh, everybody's getting a tax cut. Well, yeah, but if you figure out who's getting it, I think uh, you got to get into the dirt a little bit and tell people, you know, yeah. what's really happening there. Well, even when you give tax cuts to working class people, what, uh, you know, a substantial tax cut to working class people over time leads to lower wages, oddly enough. I know it seems counterintuitive, but that's how it works because it inflates the take home payroll of working class people and employers, the marketplace in which employers work is an after tax marketplace. So this whole tax cut thing has been, you know, played by uh, Republicans for so long in such bizarre ways. Anyhow, James, thanks for the call. Rick in uh, Carpinteria, California. Hey, Rick, what's up? Carpinteria, Tom. I just wanted to get your thoughts on Lindsey Graham and Dianne Feinstein as they basically, I think, you know, started to play nice and reach across the aisle, even uh, in an embrace to maybe set a more bipartisan stage for the Senate and I'm just wondering if you think we'll see more of this happening after a Trump landslide. I don't know. I, you know, when I heard, you know, first of all, when the when that hearing with Amy Coney Barrett started, when you Feinstein, I mean, Feinstein is the leader of the Democrats on that Senate committee. She's 87 years old, and I was worried that maybe she doesn't have it all together. She did a great job of questioning, but then, you know, she goes and hugs Lindsey Graham, and I'm like, wait a minute, is this woman losing it? There are times for bipartisanship. That was not it. 
<laughs> you know, that was just not it. I mean, these, these people are committing a political crime right in front of our eyes. I have some very, very uh, uh, serious concerns about uh, the political wisdom, much less anything else, of Diane Feinstein right at this moment. And, I, you know, I, I'm not calling for her to be ousted or anything like that, but uh, I'm guessing she got a lot of blowback for that, and I'm hoping that it was an instructive moment. What is it that Leslie Stahl asked Donald Trump about that caused him to storm out? I, the word that I'm hearing leaking out around the edges of the show is that she was basically doing what, well, she was being a reporter, she, that she was asking follow-up questions. And, you know, if that's the case, and, and they were specifically about the coronavirus and his failure to deal with it, if that's the case, good on her. But in any case... This just came to light, and this is a new report that was uncovered. And these documents were found by uh, reporters over at Politico. And on uh, September 2nd, right, six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, Donald Trump issued a presidential directive, an executive order, saying that all the federal agencies should look at limiting funds to cities, jurisdictions, that, quote, disempower police departments and promote lawlessness. Now, this is, you know, obviously his response to things like the protests here in Portland, et cetera. And within three weeks of his doing that, Bill Barr had labeled New York City, Portland, and Seattle as, quote, anarchist jurisdictions. The documents were released by Politico. The New York City, Washington, D.C., on the East Coast, and Portland and Seattle on the West Coast are looking at cuts to not just coronavirus relief money, from federal money, but HIV treatment, federal money, newborn screenings, you know, health screenings, just general, you know, how's the baby doing with federal money, and other programs that are designed to help middle class and poor people in Washington, D.C., New York City, Seattle, and Portland. Trump, of course, is not going after any programs, any federal money that is subsidizing or helping or assisting billionaires or big corporations. And there's plenty of that out there. He's not going after that. He is taking out of these cities' budgets money for stuff that average working people and poor people rely on. This is just vicious stuff. But we have to keep in mind, this is the guy who tore children nursing babies from their mothers and put those babies in cages. And over 500 of them have completely lost track of their parents now. The government has no idea where their parents are. One of the reporters for the New York Times, I just retweeted her piece a little bit ago. You can see it on my Twitter feed. She said that when these children were informed that their parents were gone, they started screaming. Can you imagine being three, four, five, six years old and being told you'll never see your parents again? We have no idea where they are. Can you imagine your child being taken away from you and not having any idea how to find them? Jacob Silveroff was talking about this on MSNBC. He said that some of these parents are literally, you know, they get a clue, they, get, they hear that, oh, you know, my, my, your child is with a foster family in, in Minneapolis. And so they go there and they're literally going door to door. Ask, you know, do you know where my child is? trying to find their children. 
and these children are begging for their parents. And the Trump administration is like, yeah, yeah, it's just 500 kids, more or less. I think it's 543. It's just a little over 500 children. What's the big deal? And meanwhile, you've got this whole big, bizarre conspiracy theory that has kind of consumed the Republican Party and is rapidly subsuming it that, you know, pretends to be concerned about the children. When the Trump administration has over 500 children who have, they have no way to reconnect them to their parents? Seriously? And this doesn't concern them? This is just breathtaking. Uh, New York City Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio's spokesperson, Laura Fair, said this is nothing more than political retribution. Chrissy Giuliano, the executive director of the Big Cities Health Coalition, said the bottom line is there's no extra money lying around for cities. This is not a time to be playing politics with people's health. And that's exactly what they're doing. This is a group that represents health departments in U.S. cities, including the four that were targeted by, by Donald Trump. I mean, it just doesn't get worse than this. This administration is not just, you know, be engaging in criminal behavior, you know, violating the Hatch Act and breaking laws left and right and trying to bribe and intimidate foreign governments into, into helping them in elections and things like that. But they're, they're participating in a deeply immoral behavior as well. We'll be back. Oh, and Jim Clyburn, just uh, the number three Democrat in the House, just released a whole bunch of documents from the White House Coronavirus Task Forces. They knew how bad things were. Susan, in uh, Alachua, Florida. You were talking about the homeless population earlier. All these Mm. people are going to be tossed out because they can't pay their rent now. And I'm thinking all these churches are sitting empty. And maybe the churches should reach out to their um, members and open up their basements or their conference rooms or whatever and and support a couple of these families. And uh, I'm not, I know that that won't cover everybody, but certainly it would cover a few and some is better than none. You know, there are different slices to the homeless population. And for those people who simply are homeless because they literally lost their home. I mean, you know, somebody loses their job, they can't make their mortgage payment, they get evicted, and now they've got no place to go and they don't have enough money to find a place to rent. For people like that, what you're suggesting, getting the churches involved or other civic organizations, uh, you know, obviously cities and towns and counties, all good stuff. But then there's another slice of the homeless population that are the paranoid schizophrenics, the people who just don't want to go inside. And there are other, you know, more marginalized kind of subslices that have very, very specific and special needs. Right across the board, none of these needs are being met by our society and haven't been since the days of Reagan. It gets problematic. You know, I get your point, Susan. I mean, you would think that the churches, if they actually were practicing uh, what Jesus said, you know, in, in Matthew 25, basically he said, I was homeless and you didn't take me in. Uh, That's not, you know, literally he didn't say homeless, but, uh, you know, the the implication. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me, as I recall the phrase. And uh, you would think that they would want to do something about this. But, you know, when you talk to Jerry Falwell Jr. or, you know, Franklin Graham, they're like, yeah, you know, Jesus, who's that? We follow Paul. 
Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's up? With this Republican Party, I can remember a couple of years ago, someone calling in and you had the same sort of argument with a right winger because he was like, well, to the effect, like, let him die. And you was like, well, no, you can't just say that about human beings. I don't know okay. if you remember all of that, but all it is is it's just like they're heartless, they're cold, and without any sympathy or empathy for, for people, we're just numbers to them. And right now, it just seems like because of the tax break, if they mm-hmm. can um, save money by someone getting off of Medicare that way or any other governmental service, they'll take it. And my question yeah. is this. Yeah. If Trump was so invested in getting rid of this virus or the Republicans, how come they never came out with a, with a plan like, say, for example, we got hit by a dirty bomb? What would be the first thing that we that you think would happen in these Americans? You know, in, in any American city, they got hit by one or more dirty bombs. We you are sure? completely unprepared for that, Charles. You know, you and I have talked about right. this in the past. We're unprepared for a biological <laughs> attack. We're unprepared for a natural disaster, which is arguably what COVID is, because we have no national health infrastructure, or at least no centralized national health infrastructure. It's not efficient. It's incredibly clumsy. It's insanely expensive. And it's got a whole bunch of blood-sucking leeches attached to pretty much every dimension of it, uh, you know, trying to take all our cash, and, and which is why we paid more than twice as much for health care as any other developed country of the world. So I'm with you. I, th- I think that this response has been insanely reckless. And there's another dimension to this that I want you to also think about, and it's the, the um, immigrant factor. Because this thing about what they did to the people on the border in those cages, and now they also know that probably some people won't go to the hospital because Oh, they're afraid of getting busted by ICE. Yeah. And then you end up with COVID spreading its way through the undocumented immigrant community. And and it's right now it's burning through these uh, children's prisons that these concentration camps that Donald Trump and uh, and his buddies have built. And uh, it's just it's a screaming disaster. Charles, thanks for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. And you always offer something useful and some insight that is useful for the conversation. Elizabeth in Seattle. Hey, Elizabeth, you wanted to get back to education? I do. Something that has been disturbing me, and you just touched on it now, but when I was studying multicultural, taking some multicultural courses, if you want to eliminate a group or a race, first you limit their use of their home language, and then you begin to eliminate their youth. And you mentioned that in the beginning, there was great publicity about it was mainly uh, COVID-19 19 was mainly eliminating the elderly. Well, that was seen as a good thing because of Social Security. And then it was identified eliminating the blacks. Well, that was considered a good thing, um, unfortunately. And then there was shift to, um, oh, it's it's COVID is beginning to um, infect children. Aha, uh-huh. now we have, we can get three birds with one stone because the push became open schools. Children are, are resistant. Well, they're not. However, if we look at the crowded conditions in our underserved communities, they're predominantly children of color. They're multi-generational families, which there you have the elderly. And so we're eliminating our youth. We are impacting communities of color, and we are um, impacting the elderly. And so by opening the schools, 
you're getting a large degree of infection and elimination of certain groups. Just think it's about almost that. as if Stephen Stephen Miller's um, uh, I lack a word uh, his torture program for Hispanic asylum seekers in the United States um, just you know and the, the, all the worst racial aspects of that just got overlaid on top of federal health policy and now federal education policy. And you know Stephen Miller is probably not only not upset about children who have died in detention, other than the you know the, the, the fact that it looks bad for him, but may even be you know I don't know. I mean, is it too much to think that the guy is gloating? It's mind-boggling. Elizabeth, thank you for the call. This is a tough one. Is it possible that these guys are that Machiavellian, that evil, that that committed? to their white supremacist racial theories? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. NetSuite.com slash Hartman. That's NetSuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Randy in Ottawa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. There's something that's been bothering me. I think it's the elephant in the room or one of the elephants in the room besides COVID. And it's the economics. And you... Just by coincidence, when you commented earlier, let's reverse uh, the Chinese economic buildup. That's what Joni Ernst is fighting for now in this election season against her Democratic opponent. The reason I called today is that I wanted to know if you remembered the legislation that this was inserted into. That would be the tax incentives for outsourcing manufacturing to china it would have been in 05 06 under the george bush administration i believe i believe it was the tail end of the clinton administration and it was giving china a permanent most favored nation status with regard to trade or permanent you know it was pntr bernie used to rave about this on this program uh permanent normal trade relations pntr i don't believe Um, so you don't think it was clinton it was bush No, this was in 2005, 2006, and it was specific legislation that 
gave tax incentives to corporations that outsourced jobs. Mm. And the okay. Democrats tried to reverse that in 2009 before they got thrown out in 2010. But they okay, failed. Randy, I, I don't I don't know the details on that. If, if you can find them, send them to me and I'll report on them here. Um, you know, I, th- there have been a okay. lot of stages to this thing. And, and, and you know, and China's done a very good job of, of having their people lobbying the United States and and American companies, okay. you know, have have just, you know, basically betrayed their country. And, uh, so, you know, true. Here we are. True. The point is that that this earns what they're not saying is I think this goes clear back to. Do you remember the term uh, that the Republicans are using public private partnerships? I yeah. think this goes back to, and I think this is evolving into a situation where the Republicans are going to reverse their drastic uh, free trade uh, initiatives and their corporate subsidies for uh, outsourcing by um, using taxpayer dollars to uh, bring those jobs back or bring that manufacturing back. And uh, there's this catch there that that is, it's in glare, that it's, was obvious. Do you remember the the um, carrier incident in Indiana where Trump tried to save the jobs? Uh, right, and they, they shipped uh, them overseas for, anyway. They shipped yeah, them to, they went to, to Mexico, Mexico. Though, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, they went to Mexico. But that, in that deal, see, that was a revolving door of tax dollars. The, the federal government was subsidizing tax subsidies to carrier to outsource those jobs to Mexico, but yet uh, Indiana ended up getting stuck giving tax subsidies to carrier to keep the jobs here. And what happened right. is that the uh, carrier was going to get more money for sending the jobs to Mexico, which you just pointed out. Uh, they ended up sending those jobs out anyways, the majority of them, two thirds of them. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, this is because they were. Yep. I was just going to say, Randy, this is this is just an elaborate game that corporations have been playing for the last 20, 30, 40 years uh, in a big way, the last 20 years because they have been empowered. I mean, you know, we this is uh, actually what you're talking about here is at the core of uh, my book that's coming out in uh, in a few weeks, uh, Oligarchy, how or excuse me, a monopoly, hidden history of monopoly and, how, you know, how big corporations stole the American dream. And and, you know, that's essentially it. They bought the Republican Party and then they had the Republican Party make, you know, everything more profitable for corporations to hell with the American worker. In fact, they don't even particularly like the American worker. They only want American workers to have enough money to buy their products, period, full stop. And, you know, well, uh, the, pick your company. Yep. And it's happened so slowly. It's evolved so slowly that yeah. if you really don't put it in context and have take the long point of view, um, it's really hard to see it, but th- it's scary. Uh, this bring jobs back, and and they're going to give them more tax subsidies uh, yeah. uh, to do it. Now, I remember um, when this thing started back in the 1970s. I was living in Michigan, you know, which was you know we made cars in Michigan, and uh, Toyota and Honda started selling really really cheap junky cars in the United States. This was in the 70s. And if you had one of those cars, and I, I had bought one used for 35 bucks, I was very proud of the fact that for the, about the first 10 years that I was driving, I never paid more than $35 for a car. 
And yep. wherever I parked, it would get keyed. I mean, it was just covered with key marks. <laughs> if you had a foreign car, you know, your car was going to get keyed. It was just like that was part of the price of having a foreign car. And 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 that was the very and there were books about, you know, China, uh, you know, rising and China was or excuse me, Japan. This was Japan at that time. That was in the 70s. And then, of course, in the 90s, it was China. And uh, but uh, Randy, I got to move along. But it, it's a it, this is a serious issue that we've got to we've got to pay some attention to. Steve in Orlando, Florida. Hey, Steve, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? I wanted to complain against Facebook uh, for rejecting our organization's political ad. For like three weeks, they held us up, even though we provided all the documentation. You know, your viewers may not know, they required us to provide scans of the IRS forms and federal ID number and state of Florida corporate forms and the bank statement and even my personal info. And, and including a copy of my driver's license, and uh, and then we waited eight days for a passcode in the in the in the in the postal mail that we you know that I entered. And anyway, they kept rejecting the ad. So we finally yesterday we spent six hundred and fifty dollars, and instead of on Facebook, we we put it on uh, in the Orlando Sentinel. Uh, to, and all it was was a, was an ad saying to vote for our endorsed candidates, the National Organization for Women, and. Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm just really angry about that they that they did all this, and um, not only that, the uh, I used to have they they did approve an ad that I used to run up until a few months ago about a pro-choice now T-shirt with it was pretty radical, no apology, no compromise, no no uh, um, restriction, and they allowed me to run it, and then when I tried to run it uh, a month ago, they refused. Right. Right. Um, Facebook, Google, uh, uh, you know, generally speaking, social media and big tech are not your friend if you're a progressive, Steve. Back, I think it was five, six, seven years ago or thereabouts, Google changed their algorithms so that while they were, you know, if you search for a particular term, right wing websites like the Daily Caller would pop right up to the top. But Alternet, which was at the time one of the most popular progressive websites out there, did not. They just they just froze out alternate. And as a result, alternate uh, ended up getting sold. I mean, you know, it was like, you know, it was a, uh, it's still around. The guy who bought it, you know, is running it and doing a fine job, but it's not it's not getting anything close to the traffic it used to get. Facebook has become, you know, the go-to place for for uh, you know, right-wing trolls and and uh, you know, gun nuts. And it's just, it's it's a very unfortunate thing. It, it really My is. Uh, Steve, whoop, I'm sorry, Steve. I uh, slight delay there. I didn't. I thought you were done. Jonathan in Portland. Hey, Jonathan, what's up? Hi, Tom. You know, <clears throat> I think your program does a fantastic service for democracy because I think your 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 program promotes thoughtfulness, and I think thoughtfulness is the enemy of authoritarianism. I was listening to the author Masha Gessen the other day, and she was talking about life under the Soviet un, under Soviet Russia and authoritarianism, and specifically how people are not allowed to have opinions. But mm-hmm. in this country, <clears throat> we have the opposite. We have a, a proliferation of opinions, all acquired superficially, without much thought, and all acted upon reflexively. And in my estimation, that is a direct result of commercialism and advertising and marketing. And people don't want you to be reflective. They don't want you to be thoughtful. There was a a great interview, um, actually, with David Letterman and and Bill O'Reilly, where Bill O'Reilly is bullying 
bullying David Letterman about the Iraq war and asking him if he wants us to be wants us to win. And uh, Letterman says, you know, I can't answer that uh, because I'm thoughtful. And uh, the audience laughed. But, you know, you're you're providing a venue where people can be thoughtful and, and consider a whole variety of, of issues. And, and that's really what this country needs. Thank you. Um, I think that one of the one of the variables that doesn't get discussed enough about why there is so little thoughtfulness in and, and, and actual dialogue, you know, a Socratic uh, or even platonic dialogue um, is is the algorithms. We have, you know, Facebook and Twitter and, and other social media and uh, increasingly, you know, marketing systems and whatnot, where we are slicing and dicing our population. And then we are actually encouraging people to live in little bubbles where, you know, if I go on Facebook or if I go on Twitter, I almost never see conservatives. If conservatives go on Facebook or Twitter, they almost never see people like me. And as a consequence, we're not put in a situation where we have to talk to each other. And, and, you know, where, where, where our ideas can clash, where we can even have a reasonable discussion or even a fight, well, you know, I mean, not well that, a physical you know, fight. Is, isn't that a form of tribalism? I mean, that's the most primitive form of, of human society. I think it's the exploitation of human nature for profit by big tech. That's how I would describe it. Yes, yeah. tribalism yeah. is part of human nature. Absolutely. And, but what they're doing is they're exacerbating this. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're talking, you know, why there's even a conversation about, you know, America having a second civil war is, is that, you know, our, our electronic media, in particular, our social media, have been using these algorithms to slice and dice us in ways that are hugely profitable. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is worth $70 billion. You know, the, the, the Google guy is worth billions and billions of dollars. Uh, but is it good for society? Is it good for America? Is it good for democracy? Small d democracy. Um, I think that that's a conversation. I, I think you could build a case that in some ways it could be, but I think you can also build a case that in many ways it's absolutely not, and it's a conversation that we need to be having. Jonathan, thank you for the acknowledgement. I appreciate it, and thank you for your call. Vic in Stockton, California. Hey, Vic, what's up? You know, whoever creates and packages the message controls the minds of the electorate, ultimately their vote. The Republicans have known this for years and therefore have mastered the art of manipulation of propaganda to the, to the detriment of our society, unfortunately. So I want to ask you, why haven't the Democrats learned to use the same marketing techniques against the Republicans over the last 40 years so they can resurrect the Democratic brand, which has been for, for decades so successful? Thanks, Tom. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Vic. I think they should. I wrote a book in 2008 titled Cracking the Code, which was about political communication and how the Democrats should do that. I think one of the largest problems is that, you know, when, when uh, Clinton uh, and Al Fromm started the Democratic Leadership Council back in uh, 1991, um, it split the Democratic Party into two pieces, into the corporate side and into the progressive side. And so it's been really hard to pull the Democrats together into one particular, you know, cohesive messaging unit ever since. Um, that is changing as the progressives are rising and the corporate Dems are, are, are falling. But uh, I think that's the biggest problem. The Republican Party doesn't suffer from such factionalism in large part because, uh, you know, the, the same billionaires uh, all across the Republican Party are, are uh, you know, owning politician after politician after politician. Charles in Elkhart, Indiana. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind? Yeah, I think the Democrats missed out on a golden opportunity 
when Trump talks about the economy. And it sounds crazy, but COVID actually kind of bailed Trump out because in 2019, economic analysts had already projected that we were facing a recession in late 2020, right around the election to the first quarter of 2021. And the Fed chairman, I can't remember which one of the financial newspapers I was reading, this was in 2019, he was talking about the revenues were so bad that if there was some type of economic disturbance or something, they would be limited in their ability to fight it, which they've somehow come up with the money to be able to fight it. They didn't know it was going to be COVID, but the economic disturbance uh, turned out to be COVID, and somehow or other they've come up with the money to fight it. Now, all this was in 2019, and everybody's talking about how great the economy was, and I'm like, well, yeah, the unemployment rate was low, but then what was going on with the revenues and the deficit and whatnot? You know, nobody paid attention to that. Yeah, well, in fact, by by uh, February, the recession had begun. Every expectation was that the first quarter would be clearly in recession, you know, would be measurable recession. It only kind of largely got ignored because of COVID. Yeah, spot on. I, you know, we would be in a major recession or at least a significant recession right now because we had just completed the longest expansion in, in, in the history of the United States. You know, as a result of, of uh, you know, Bush crashing the economy through his deregulation back in 2008 and then, you know, Obama putting it back together in his stimulus. So, I, you know, I think your point is well taken, Charles. It's, uh, it's very well taken and something that, yeah, you're, you're welcome. Good point. Thanks. Karen in Winter Haven, Florida. Hey, Karen, what's up? Hey, Tom. It was great to see uh, Haven on, and I wanted to um, go over with you uh, a connection uh, back to our youth, our birthdays are almost the same, of the new frontier in the Great Society. Uh, okay. That's what excited me in my youth. Uh, Michael Harrington. The new fr- for people who don't know, Karen, if I could just insert, uh, the New Frontier was Jack Kennedy's um, slogan for you know reinventing America. And then after he was assassinated, um, Lyndon Johnson's was the Great Society. Go ahead. Correct. Michael Harrington had written the book, I believe it was Poverty in America, and Americans were ashamed at, uh, in this land of plenty, which we were kind of thriving after World War II, um, that this poverty existed. That program in the Great Society, until the Republicans dismantled it, did reduce poverty by 50%. I believe the Green New Deal mm-hmm. will uh, create the same kind of enthusiasm in the youth. I think the one thing we do need to do is make, uh, have each community uh, get together for meetings on how they want to attack uh, the climate change in their own community so that we bring the, the community in and not make it so top-heavy. You mean drive it from the bottom up kind of thing? Yeah, well, you know how when you're going to do a program, you really need to involve the community you're going to do it in. Sure. And sure. Uh, that's, Oh, you have that's to. how we have to work in. Huh? Yeah. yeah, you have to. If you don't, it'll blow up in your face, uh, ultimately. And that's right. what's happened to the Republicans. Karen, thank you. Brilliant. Uh, spot on. I mean, you know, these are these are precarious times we live in. They are they are pregnant with great danger, but also with great opportunity. We'll be back with more of your calls on Anything Goes Friday in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Donut Economics, brand new book by Kate Raworth, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. 
And on page 21 in the uh, Who Wants to Be an Economist chapter, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist, here they are. Whether you consider yourself an economic veteran or novice, now is the time to uncover the economic graffiti that lingers in all of our minds. If you don't like what you find, scrub it out, or better still, paint it over with new images that far better serve our needs and times. The rest of this book proposes seven ways to think like a 21st century economist, revealing for each of those seven ways the spurious image that has occupied our minds, how it has come to be so powerful, and the damaging influence it has had. The time for mere critique is past, which is why the focus here is on creating new images that capture the essential principles to guide us now. The diagrams in this book aim to summarize that leap from old to new economic thinking. Taking together, they set out quite literally a new big picture for the 21st century economist. So here is a whirlwind tour of the ideas and images at the heart of donut economics. First, change the goal. For over 70 years, economics has been fixated on GDP, or national output, as its primary measure of progress. That fixation has been used to justify extreme inequalities of income and wealth, coupled with unprecedented destruction of the living world. For the 21st century, a far bigger goal is needed, meeting the human needs of every person within the means of our life-giving planet. And that goal is encapsulated in the concept of the donut. The challenge now is to create economies, local to global, that help to bring all of humanity into the donut's safe and just space. Instead of pursuing ever-increasing GDP, it's time to discover how to thrive in balance. Second, see the big picture. Mainstream economics depicts the whole economy with just one extremely limited image, the circular flow diagram. Its limitations have, furthermore, been used to reinforce a neoliberal narrative about the efficiency of the market, the incompetence of the state, the domesticity of the household, and the tragedy of the commons. It is time to draw the economy anew, embedding it within society and within nature and powered by the sun. This new depiction invites new narratives about the power of the market, the partnership of the state, the core role of the household, and the creativity of the commons. Third, nurture human nature. At the heart of 20th century economics stands the portrait of rational economic man. He has told us that we are self-interested, isolated, calculating, fixed in taste, and dominant over nature. And his portrait has shaped who we have become. But human nature is far richer than this. As early sketches of our new self-portrait reveal, we are social, interdependent, approximating, fluid in values, and dependent upon the living world. What's more, it is indeed possible to nurture human nature in ways that give us a far greater chance of getting into the donut's safe and just space. Fourth, get savvy with systems. The ironic crisscross of the market supply and demand curves is the first diagram that every economic student encounters. But it is rooted in misplaced 19th century metaphors of mechanical equilibrium. A far smarter starting point for understanding the economy's dynamism is systems thinking, summed up by a simple pair of feedback loops. Putting such dynamics at the heart of economics opens up many new insights, from the boom and bust of financial markets to the self-reinforcing nature of economic inequality and the tipping points of climate change. It's time to stop searching for the economy's elusive control levers and start rewarding it as an ever-evolving, complex system. Fifth, designed to distribute. In the 20th century, one simple curve, the Kuznets curve, whispered a powerful message on inequality. It has to get worse before it can get better, and growth will eventually make it up. 
or even it up. But inequality, it turns out, is not an economic necessity. It is a design failure. 21st century economists will recognize that there are many ways to design economies to be far more distributive of the value that they generate, an idea best represented as a network of flows. It means that going beyond redistributing income to exploring ways to redistributing wealth, particularly the wealth that lies in controlling land, enterprise, technology, knowledge, and the power to create money. Sixth, create to regenerate. Economic theory has long portrayed a clean environment as a luxury good, affordable only for the well-off. This view was reinforced by the environmental Kuznets curve, which once again whispered that pollution has to get worse before it can get better and growth will eventually clean it up. But there is no such law. Ecological degradation is simply the result of degenerative industrial design. This century needs economic thinking that unleashes regenerative design in order to create a circular, not linear, economy and to restore humans as full participants to Earth's cyclical processes of life. Seventh, be agnostic about growth. One diagram in economic theory is so dangerous that it's actually never drawn, the long-term path of GDP growth. Mainstream economics views endless economic growth as a must, but nothing in nature grows forever, and the attempt to buck that trend is raising tough questions in high-income but low-growth countries. The book, Donut Economics. Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Yeah, I just wanted to talk about something that's been going on for years, and that's uh, trickle-down and redlining. Trickle-down economics hurts the entire country. They've been talking about that now for 40 years, and they act like it was, it's been written by the finger of God on the, on the dome of the White House or something. And like here right. in Chicago, yeah, here in Chicago, the redlining, it's been 52 years. I remember uh, in 68 when they said that we're going to uh, redline the west and south sides. And that's a discriminatory and racial practice that uh, nobody caught on to until lately, these last uh, few years. Yeah, and, uh, I'm with you. Maine, I got to bail, but thank you. I, I just read a piece that in Detroit, people can't get loans because they're redlining Detroit right now. It's amazing. Thanks so much to Sean Taylor, Louise Hartman, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Frost, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabberwocky, the folks who bring you this program, or all work together to make this program work. And, and to you, thank you to you for being here, for listening, for watching, for sharing our show with other people. So get out there, get active, make sure your vote gets counted. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 